You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, we've been in this series called Shiny Objects, and typically we've been talking about shiny objects that uh, the people of God, the Israelites, had really put God as an afterthought. He was an add-on to life. He wasn't all of life for them, they, and, and it was showing up. They were treating even the visible presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. They were treating that high and beautiful Ark. They were treating it with disregard. They thought it was like a good luck charm. And so they were going through life saying, I'm trying to get all sorts of stuff around me, but I want to take my good luck charm with me. And as we've studied, you realize that, uh, that they have taken it, they took it into battle, and they did so disrespectfully, and they lost it, and the Philistines captured it, and then it went from one Philistine town to another, and they had these plagues break out in the Philistine towns. Finally, they're like, give it back! How do we give it back? And they sent it back to the people of Israel, but the people of Israel hadn't really changed, so when the ark came back, they still treated it with disrespect. And so some crazy stuff happened and they, at one town, and they finally said, send it up, send it up into the forest. And so they, they send it up into this town in the forest, and it stays there for 20 years. Then we looked last week at how King David came along and said, I want to take this ark, and I'm going to bring it up because eventually we want a temple built up in Jerusalem, and that ark should go in there. And, and he brings it up eventually uh, to that area. And we've been following the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, it's interesting, even seeing these kids playing in the video we just watched, Sports at Camp, it reminds me of uh, the very first time I scored a goal in soccer. And I don't know if any of you have ever played soccer. I was probably fifth or sixth grade. And I remember I at first had to start out. Thank you, JC. Yes, I see you there. Um, she's playing for Cal State. Stanislaus right now. Give it up for JC. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but like... Uh, she likes soccer. But the first time I was playing, you know, you have to start off playing defense because you don't know what you're doing. You're not very good. So I played like probably a year on defense. Then I got my chance, big chance, sixth grader. I got to uh, go up and play right wing, which is, uh, you know, on offense. And so you're trying to score. And I remember I'm dribbling the ball down the field and I'm running really fast. And I know that the best player on the team is our center forward. So if I can just get the ball to that guy, he can score, because I've seen it, like, he is just amazing. Like, I don't know how the guy has all that talent, but if I could just get it to him, then, then that'd be great. So I'm dribbling up the field, and I see him, and I'm, like, going to cross it to him, and I got under the ball, and I see the ball going, and he's waiting for it, and I watch it just go right over him, and, and I watch it, and it goes right over the goalie, right into the back of the goal. Yeah, come on. Instant glory, you know, total accident, total mistake. But, you know, it, in that moment, it just awakened this hunger in me that, like, wow, you know, I like getting rewarded. There, when you do something great like that, there's, there's reward in that. That's like a great thing whether you meant to do it, you know, or not. It was kind of fun. And, and I remember that it just launched this hunger for rewards. And, and if you know anything about rewards, you'll realize that reward is one of the most powerful motivators that there is. And we're going to look at that a little bit today. Uh, you, you might be in this room and you might be competitive. You, your friends might acknowledge that you are a competitive person. In fact, when the board games come out, you're relentless. If that's you, just raise your hand. Come on, be loud and proud. There you go, right? So you're going to you're, you are relentless. In fact, and others of us in the room, you're like, well, I didn't think I was com you know, really competitive. I try not to be competitive. But then you knew competition in life. You knew competition when you were at the eighth grade dance and your crush chose to dance with somebody else. In that moment, you knew competition. You knew competition when you showed up for the picnic and you brought, you know, hot dogs for the barbecue and somebody else brought ribeye. In that moment, you knew 
wait a minute, there's this thing called competition on the inside. You knew competition when you clearly had the best resume, you had years of hand-on experience, and somebody else got the promotion or the job you were after. In that moment, you knew competition. And in the real world, uh, it works with competition. Our our society tries to play down competition, have you noticed? We've got like, you know, maybe you grew up in the day where, some of you are older, and you grew up in the day where you had like separated physical ed. You had like separated guys and girls. Uh, some of you are younger, and you grew up in the era where like everybody on the team got a trophy because they didn't want anyone to feel like they lost. But if you were a competitor, you knew your team was either horrible or your team was like fantastic and great, and you wanted to be able to say that, right, because you just knew. You knew in that moment that, that that's the way it is. If you're a competitor, if you're a leader, then you're one of these people that even when people say, hey, let's just play for fun, no one's keeping score. If anyone asked you what the score is at any moment, you could tell them. <laughs> right? Because that's what you are. You're a competitor. You're a leader on the inside. And, and you know that competition is a real deal. And in the real world, we keep score. And the way that we keep score in the real world is we keep score by money. That's how we keep score. If you talk to businesses, if you talk about anything, the way the spreadsheet is going to say who's got the best score. We believe in our hearts that money will free us. We believe that money will give us pleasures uh, that we desire or it will give us maybe more time off or that money can be our security or money will buy us freedom from fears. We think that money or possessions will attract people to us even though we know the limitations and liabilities that we have in ourselves. And, and many people feel that money will insulate them from problems in life and make them secure. And the question we ask is, are you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are we going to trust money or are we going to trust God? What's going to be, is money going to be a shiny object or do we trust the creator of the universe, almighty God? That's the question that we're going to ask. Here's why I think you need this sermon. Chances are your life is distracted by some shiny objects that ultimately just don't matter. Chances are you and I are not necessarily investing in the kind of things that really give us reward in the future. We're not investing and leveraging what we have to the best of our abilities to make the most impact the way that we could. And so we've been obviously following the Ark of the Covenant, and and that was a sign of God's presence. And in your own life, the Holy Spirit is the sign of God's presence in your life right now that you're being led by Him. But there are times that we kind of hold the Holy Spirit on the inside, and we kind of just live life on the outside like it's just our life. It's just what we do. It's just how we've operated And we followed the Ark of the Covenant. We followed it from Israel into the Philistine territories, back into Israel to Kiriath-Yerahim, up on the city in the forest. Then we watched David bring it up toward Jerusalem, and he eventually put it in a tent that later on would become the place where the temple itself would be built. And the Ark of the Covenant was put in that temple, and it was there for centuries and centuries. And then all of a sudden in AD 70, the Romans came along, and they wiped out the temple. They scraped the temple mount flat. They got rid of it entirely. And it was taken, obviously... Uh, it, it was destroyed. It would be like taking a bulldozer and scraping a house off of a, you know, off of a bluff and just letting the whole house fall down to the ground. And that's what the Romans did to squelch the Jewish uprising in AD 70. And people ask, well, where'd the ark go? And you can watch a whole National Geographic special and they will intrigue you and you will spend an hour of your life watching the National Geographic special on the ark and at the end, they don't know. 
and, and you'll just sit there going like, I didn't have any additional information than I did before after watching this whole thing. The whole thing is they'll speculate about where it is, but they never show it to you. They don't know. We have no idea where it is. We think until you open your Bible and you pick up John's Revelation in the book of Revelations, chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. If you have your Bible, turn there. And we're going to look at an indication about where the ark might be now. Where could it be? Where is the ark? And we see this in the scriptures. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and what? Ever and ever. Now, just picture this for a moment. God's going to reign forever and ever. The return of Christ and the ultimate judgment of Christ is going to usher in the reign of Christ forever and ever. Listen, in our hearts, we hunger for a kingdom like that. Could you imagine living in a kingdom where the leader, the king, the one who reigns over all has never, ever been wrong? Ever. No dirt finding ever finds any dirt. He's always just. He's always right. He is pure and holy. He is all-powerful. He has unlimited resources. He's phenomenal. This is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our hearts hunger for a leadership that would be like that. Our hearts hunger for a kingdom that would be ushered in at a time like that. He'll reign not just for a little while, but forever and ever. Verse 16, And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty the one who is and the one who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. What was the condition of the nations at this time that God's reign comes? Look with me at verse 18. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. We hear that and we go, oh no, it's the time where God's going to judge the dead. And sometimes we go, <gasps> but it doesn't just say judge the dead. Yeah, that'll happen. But there's this phrase in there that says rewarding those who revere your name, like the prophets and just regular people like you and me. People who believe in Jesus Christ, who honor him, who love him, that God is going to be a rewarding God. I don't want you to miss that. The reward is not simply entrance into heaven. That's called salvation. And that's all through God, not of our works. It's all through him. But there is something by which God becomes a rewarding God. So what happens? Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen what? Oh, there it is. The Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Let me tell you, when God wants to reinforce his holiness, his power, his authority, he knows how to do it. Could you imagine being an athlete, and you're announced as you're going to go into the game, and you could make lightning and peals of thunder, and a strong earthquake, and a big hailstorm just announce how great you are? See, we can do none of those things. We play like some song from pop music, right? As people are coming out, that's what we do. We play, oh, that's their, that's their song. They're a really good athlete. God knows how to punctuate his power. Pretty awesome. This is the revelation that John saw as he writes in Revelation chapter 11. 
Well, I want you to understand something about resources. I want you to understand something about how we can leverage what God has given us here on earth for heavenly reward. And so if you're taking notes today, take your outline out. And what I want you to realize first is that what gets rewarded gets repeated. What gets rewarded gets repeated. Nagging doesn't often get rewarded. Nagging leads to more nagging to try and get repeated, right? But sometimes when you catch your kid doing something right, when you catch someone else doing something right and you reward that either verbally or in some neat way, all of a sudden you realize, wow, people like, like reward. They, they'll repeat doing the right thing. So often we're nagging and catching people doing something wrong, but what about catching them doing something right? There's reward in that. We all like that. Listen, it'll take you 17 minutes to read Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. His most famous speech. And he has speeches and sermons and all sorts, but his most famous one, if you read it straight through, it will take you 17 minutes. And his heart longed for the return of Christ. His heart longed for the return in so many ways. And yet you look at Jesus, and Jesus' most famous speech, his most famous sermon, is called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount will take you 13 minutes to read. All you got to do is look in your Bible and you read Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, 13 minutes, and you will read the most famous sermon of Jesus Christ, Jesus who changed the entire world, Jesus who will return, who came once, but will return again and reign. He's the one that heaven's talking about. He's the one that they're worshiping. He is the one that has the power and the authority. You read his most famous speech, it'll take you 13 minutes. But in that sermon, Jesus comes to rewire people's thinking and their motivational scorekeeping when it comes to the issue of money. Jesus spoke a lot about money. In fact, he spoke more about money than he spoke about heaven or hell. Does that surprise you? I think he knows what at times is going to be the motivation that's more powerful in people's lives. That he could use fear and talk about heaven or hell or that kind of thing, but he realizes that one of the greatest barriers to you and I living out our calling is the issue of money. And so he says this in Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. If it's in yellow, will you read it out loud with me? It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, but store up, what? For yourselves treasures in heaven where moths do, and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where... Your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's making a distinction, and it's interesting. He uses the phrase, for yourselves. So don't, so, you know, if, if in, it's a present tense uh, command, and, and so it could read like this, and your outline reveals this. You could easily in English read it this way. Jesus saying, stop storing up treasures for yourselves on earth. It's present, like, you're already doing it, but let, stop doing that. So he's saying stop something, but start something. He's saying start storing up treasures for yourselves in heaven. For yourselves. See, on earth, when you and I have treasures, we need a protection plan. We need a warranty. We need some guarantees because we realize that the water can rise and the rains can fall and, and we can have damage from that kind of thing, right? We're seeing it right now. We see trains derail. We see, you know, other things. In our neighborhood, 
uh, we've got a bunch of homes in our neighborhood that the rain has come and hit the south wall of a lot of our homes, and we've gotten water leakage in it, and we think it's a construction defect, but it's been a, a real headache. Let me just tell you, like, literally, it has been, uh, there are those moments where, <laughs> honestly, there are those moments where, as a homeowner, stuff like that happens. You got windows separating from the wall, and you got the carpet pulled back, and you got the pad cut out, and you've got, like, fan going on it, and you're trying to, like, patch up the outside, and there are these moments that even as a homeowner, let me just be honest with you, I wish I kind of rented. I wish I could just pick up the phone and be like, your home has a problem, right? We just think that sometimes our stuff, what we have, traps us. Sometimes our stuff owns us. The more that we own, the more that we own owns us. And we have to take responsibility for those things. We have to work to fix it through the appropriate channel. So listen, I, I've had bids out. I've had, you know, homeowners claim. We've been doing the work, but sometimes it's just a headache. It's frustrating, right? And then I learn about one little kid in one of our villages in India. I'm going to put his picture up here on the screen. This is Sanjay. And Sanjay, uh, his brothers and uh, sisters married, moved out of the area. They left him there. His parents are most often gone. He's just a street kid in one of our cities that we work in in India. And uh, he was addicted to alcohol. And when he started coming to the, the, the center where we really work with kids there, that we sponsor kids and work with them, when he started showing up, when he wanted to get involved in there, uh, he was addicted uh, pretty strongly. And he also was inappropriately touching uh, the girls, which is not okay, uh, be, but remember, this is a sex traffic village in which he lives, so he's just doing what he's seen every person and every adult do in his whole life. Well, at that time, he accepted Christ in the village, and they said they worked him through the addiction and detoxing from that, and there's been a radical life transformation because of Jesus Christ alive in him. He behaves greatly around the girls. He's doing just awesome. And he's coming to a place where he gets fed, where he gets, you know, clothing, where he gets a uh, uniform. He gets educated, which is not normally offered to him. He's just wandering the streets all day long, getting in trouble like kids would, right? And so now he has a place where he learns about Jesus. He's come to the gospel. He's received salvation. And, and yet life is not easy. His parents, his dad is still addicted to alcohol. When he goes, he earns very little amount. And what he does, he drinks everything away that he earned. His mom goes then to work in the fields to earn stuff. And if the owners of the fields don't like the work, they oftentimes fire the women. Then the women oftentimes sleep with strangers just to survive. And when I look at the problems in his life compared to the problems in my life, I realize that maybe my problems aren't such big problems. Maybe I could leverage what I have to help a kid like that. Maybe I could walk alongside with him. When I do, tell me, let, let me tell you, when you sponsor a kid like that, I'm just telling you, there is a great joy that happens on the inside because generosity breaks greed. I mean, you don't think I would be the happiest person in the entire world to see that kid succeed, right? Because if you're sponsoring him on a monthly basis, you're saying, I'm, I'm leveraging something of what I have to bless you. And you'll never be able to repay me. I may never meet you, 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 whatever. But I'm doing something that will bless a believer across the world and radically change the direction of his life. There will be this freedom, this liberation, this joy, this amazing sense of being rewarding in my life. Much more fun than repairing stuff on my house that leaks. 
That's the nature of it. That there's something beautiful about how we leverage what we have. What gets rewarded gets repeated. Jesus is saying, stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth that are temporary and start storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, when you think of your income, I want you to think for a minute. If we took a pie chart and we drew your income, I want to ask you, what portion of your income is treasure? You might think, well, well, Dave, are you referring to the tithe, that 10% that's returning to God? Is, is that treasure? No, that's not treasure. Are you referring to my taxes? No, taxes are not treasure. Taxes go away and they do other things, right? But your taxes are a portion of your income. Are you, Dave, are you talking about the treasure? Are you talking about my living expenses? Maybe 70% of my income. Are you talking about that? Nope, that's not what scripture would call treasure. Not your taxes, not your tithe, not your living expenses. None of those are treasure. It wouldn't even refer, it wouldn't even be thought of in a Jewish mind. Their, their temple taxes, their tithes that they gave, their living expenses, none of that would have been considered treasure. What's treasure? Treasure is gained from the leftover. Heavenly treasure is the leftover. When scripture talks about treasure, it's talking about our leftovers. What happens when we've paid our tithe, we've paid our taxes, we've paid all our living expenses, and we have leftover? Now the problem is for a lot of us, there's this thing called debt. We've been living beyond our means. And so what happens is this. Any leftover that we otherwise would have, we're paying to the bank. We're paying to something else. We're paying a lot of things in treasures on earth that incur debt, and then we pull up at the stoplight trying to impress people we'll never meet, and we look and we judge, right? We begin to see competition. Well, what do I drive compared to what they drive? How do I look compared to how they look? How do I drive compared to how they drive? Like, are, am I a better driver than they are? And we begin to get competitive, and if you're, if you're a dude and you pull up next to a muscle car, you think, who can get off the line the fastest? Unless you're a girl who's a motorhead and you might just beat that guy, right? Depending on kind of what kind of car you got. So there's this nature that we're competitive on the inside, but Jesus says something different. He says you're, what you leverage to store up treasure in heaven doesn't come from your tithe. It doesn't come from your taxes. It doesn't come from your living expenses. It only comes from how you and I manage what's left over. And if you've got debt, then what we do at Sun Grove here is we teach the financial peace class. Because we believe that scripture is clear that we ought to get ourselves out from under the load of debt so that we can earn an income honestly and have something to share. Why? Because generosity gives us freedom. It breaks greed. It's what it does. But this passage here is not talking about the tithe. Jesus says, start storing up four yourselves treasures in heaven and that's an abstract idea for a lot of people right you think treasures in heaven you might be thinking of the crown the crown of salvation that we get and scripture describes that we will someday take our crown of salvation off and we'll bow our, our knee and we will put that crown at the feet of jesus because it was all about him my salvation's not on my works it's all in what jesus did it's totally him, so I'm going to give it back to him because it's his, and every believer is going to do that. We're going to take that crown of salvation, and we're going to give it back to Jesus. And then people have this picture that heaven's just an eternal sing fest. Like all you do is just sing, sing, sing the whole time, and you're like, what do we actually do? And, but the scriptures are clear that we will lead. We will serve. We will have authority. There will be great and amazing things that we will do, but we will also enjoy the pleasures at God's right hand. And what he says is this. He says, based on how you leverage your leftovers on earth, determines the degree of your heavenly reward that you do keep in heaven. 
So in heaven, there's going to be a great disparity of people and what they have based on how they leverage the leftovers in their life. Verse, or number four in your outline. Choosing generosity gets you rewarded. When you and I choose generous, the beautiful thing in our heart is that it breaks greed. It breaks this attachment to love money and to begin loving God. That's a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing. And for some of us, it takes a while to, you know, like a while to get there. Like, okay, okay, and then you give, and then you're so happy you did. But it breaks greed, and generosity is what gets us rewarded. See, while our faith determines our eternal destination, our generosity determines the degree of reward you and I have at that eternal destination. Matthew 6.22 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Let me just pause that right there. He's not really talking about your eyesight. He's not really talking about that. Up till this point, Jesus is talking about how we leverage our resources for heavenly reward. So he's saying this. Listen, the idea in that Jewish culture was that the eye revealed a lot about the heart. We would say that the eyes are the window to the soul, right? But what he's saying this is he's using the eye that it's the lamp of the body. So he's saying this. If your eyes are healthy, which means generous. In other words, if you're generous, your whole body will be full of light. There's something that happens on the inside that shows on the outside when you and I are generous. But if your eyes are unhealthy, what's he saying? Stingy. If you're stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Then he says immediately, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's drawing an illustration. You're either going to be storing up treasures for yourself on earth, and that would be your reward that you had on earth, or you're going to leverage in the leftovers heavenly reward. Now, there are four motivations for making choices with our resources, and advertisers use these all the time. But I want to play these out for you for just a minute. If you're taking notes, this will help you understand sometimes relationships as well as understanding motivation. You'll see it in advertising. The first one is fear, right? Fear sells. Fear sells tires. Fear sells insurance. Fear sells protection plans and stuff, right? But Jesus, when he's telling this illustration— of four different people who received a certain amount of money and were to invest it, and then the master was going to come back and say, what did you do with what I gave you to invest? There was one guy at the very beginning, he gets, and he fears the master. He's afraid. And so what he does with his fear is he buries it in the ground. He's, in other words, I didn't do anything with it. I was afraid of you. I just took what you gave me, and I did nothing with it. And the master comes back and says, you wicked, lazy servant. In other words, fear paralyzed. You didn't even put it in the bank where it would gain interest is what he said. You, you could have still been, a, you know, you still could have had that motivation, but you could have put it at least on interest in the bank, and, and I would have had a little bit more when I came back. And then what Jesus does is, says, as he walks through the four different things, and there's four different illustrations, I love the picture because whatever happens is what the master gave to those people, he lets them keep. If you look at it, in the scripture, in those four illustrations, and that's a different study for a different time. But you'll see that they get to keep what they did. But some of us treat life like a protection plan. We treat it out of fear. 
I have to hoard. I have to do everything. I'm, I'm just so afraid. And are we leveraging it for the Lord? Second motivation is love. Love. Sometimes when you're first in love, when you're in love, you give and you're generous and you give flowers. And it's Valentine's Day coming up real soon. That's a heads up for the guys in the room. And I want to let you know it's coming up you know, a couple days. So we give and we're generous. And that's just the way it is. You're going to do that just naturally. And sometimes, though, we get into people pleasing, right? And we might give to please somebody. Well, I want to give because I want to feel better about myself. I want to give because I want to you know, please something. And so we love or we're trained in advertising to love certain things or love certain brands or love certain uh, types of treasures that we then kind of give our, our approval to, our allegiance. We want approval from them and we want to give our approval to it. The third one is pleasure. Pleasure would be this picture of, in terms of the Bible, pleasure would be this picture of, I get salvation. So I'm just adding God to my pursuit of other shiny objects. I already love these other things. I'm already trying to save up my treasure on earth. I'm trying to do all this, but I'm going to add God to that. So I'm just adding God to my other false gods, and it's all about me. It's a me religion. It's all about, hey, maybe God's going to bless me or I'm going to add God. He's going to be some add-on in my life like the people of Israel are doing. God was an afterthought. He wasn't the thought. He wasn't the Lord. He was an afterthought. And they were looking at him like a genie. And sometimes we do that when life becomes about pleasure. And let me just say that in America, pleasure and comfort are two of the most powerful gods that get us distracted. They're some of the most distracting shiny objects that we have and God's not saying don't go on a vacation don't live in a nice house or drive a nice car but he's saying listen you can earn heavenly reward by how you leverage the leftover for my kingdom that never perishes never spoils never fades and there's reward kept in heaven for you are you going to do that and the last one is reward and reward is interesting reward is saying no to something I love to gain something I love even more. A reward is an incredibly powerful motivator. It's no secret that people are motivated by rewards. In fact, Best Buy's reward program was such a smashing success for the company because it led to greater sales, a wealth of consumer information, including credit cards, and a better buying experience for the customer. Now, credit card companies have used rewards for a long time, right? And they turn to the incentives that they offer. Why? Because the user experience is more positive then fear, then brand love, which is that you love the brand. Oh, I got you know, I gotta love that a loyalty to some brand. They find that it's much greater than that, and it's much better than advertised pleasure. They can try to make you feel important by having their credit card or their reward, whatever, right? But reward companies have found out is probably the far greatest motivator is reward. So Jesus is saying, leverage your leftovers to get rewarded. Leverage 